friends and welcome to another edition of dan and benny in the ring i'm dan spastiano joined as always by the bs express himself benny scala benny how you doing buddy dan i'm excited for two reasons number one this is a historic episode for us number 75 who would have thought and we're going to get another really good wrestling history lesson tonight we certainly are hopefully uh the florida summer hasn't gotten to you too much i i am like semi-melting not quite yet <laughs> Well, you mentioned wrestling history lesson. We've had a pretty good run of episodes, uh, our Territory Talk episodes. We're joined once again by writer and wrestling historian Jim Phillips. Jim, thanks for being with us. Thank you, my brothers. Always good to see you and always good to talk with you as well. You, you've, we've had a good run. You're coming on the show every, when you drop your episodes on pro wrestling stories about wrestling territories. And we have talked about some of the legends and legendary territories. As a matter of fact, the last time you were on, we actually had kind of a Mount Rushmore discussion of uh, the big, big name territories, the big names. What what is always the echelon, you know, Florida, Georgia, WCCW, these these territories that are always top of the line. Well, today we're talking about something that's kind of an unsung hero of territories. Now, I've mentioned unsung heroes individual. This territory is kind of unsung in the sense that it, it's historic, it gets some press, but it never quite gets to the marquee level of some of the other big names of Georgia and Florida. And today we're you're joining us, we're talking about Amarillo and the Funks. And I, I it's just it's really interesting because the kind of before we got to recording, we were chatting about that, how it's it's not quite there. It's sort of the upper mid card of territories in that it's a big name. There's a lot of history. We're going to talk about a lot of that. But when you hear people talk about the history of territories and the best of the brightest of the territory days, you almost never hear somebody put Amarillo in the same breath as Florida or Georgia. <clears throat> but there's a lot there. And that's why you're joining us tonight, because we're. You're, you're the man, the man with the history lesson, as Benny said, and, and we're going to get to that. It's good stuff. So again, thanks for being here. Thanks for giving us your time. I really appreciate you guys letting me come on and do this, and I too as well look forward to these. Now, every time I'm working on one of my articles, I'm thinking in in the you know, I mean, in the future about things that are going to be said, things we're going to talk about. So yeah, this is definitely one of the quote unquote lost territories. Um, just because you don't really see a lot of the footage out there. Normally I do my pre-show research footage, watching matches and stuff, and I really didn't find a lot of stuff out there. I'm not sure why that is. Um, it's it's strange, you know, normally with YouTube and the internet and everything else, I'm not sure if there's a library, a video sitting somewhere idle, but I would love to get hands on it if that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just think of some of the matches we're going to talk about, some of the names we're going to talk about tonight. That's the kind of footage that would be incredible to see. And I can only imagine the atmosphere live. But before we get to that, you also, other than your your history lessons you give us, you kind of have developed quite a reputation among the fans and in the shows. Is some of the opinions you have um, have been, how we say, less than mainstream. You're the Against first the guest we've had that was critical of Ricky Steamboat. You've always had some interesting insights, to say the least, um, on current news, and, and we've had a lot of that to cover recently. And I wanted to pick your brain. We're recording this on a Tuesday. The story broke earlier that uh, Jeff Hardy, the tag team wrestler, uh, we're, we're going to get into his history here in a second, was arrested for his third DUI, multiple suspended license violations. The video of his arrest recently popped up on the internet only a few hours before we sat down to record. And uh, reports are coming out of just how bad it was. Um, his blood alcohol content at the time of the arrest was uh, three o over three and a half times the legal limit. And this is, as I said, the third time. I was wondering what your thoughts are on... One, what, hap uh, what happened, uh, the, the, the clearly systematic issues that he has, uh, but also the response in that, um, I'm not going to read the whole quote, um, Tony Khan did of officially release a statement. He obviously condemned the behavior, um, 
he did say they were able to get in contact with Jeff Hardy because at the time the story broke, he was still in jail pending uh, the rest of the arraignments. Um, doesn't condone the behavior. He's made it clear that they're going to assist in treatment, uh, which Jeff Hardy said he's going to get. This goes to the story earlier of rehab. Um, he's been suspended without pay pending the completion of his rehab. And of course, the impact on the rest of the locker room, they had a high profile ladder match scheduled for this week where the Hardys were going to be one of three teams competing for the tag titles. That match has officially been scrapped. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on all this. Well, to quote the great heel teacher in the Back to School movie by Rodney Dangerfield, I only have one answer for Mr. Sebastiano, but it's in 37 parts. No, not quite 37. Um, it's one of those things you got to be track. You got to look at track record. You know, like how many times has this happened with this guy and nothing's been done about it or they've got a slap on the wrist about it and stuff like that. I do have an opinionated mindset on quite a few different things and I, I tend to take the hard edge on things sometimes and I guess I'm going to here again because you got to be responsible for your actions, man. You know what I mean? You can't expect to be a top tier performer in a company and just be able to do whatever you want to do and not have accountability outside of the ring and outside of the company. Now let's go back. Now that's part one. Let's part two is uh, like, look at the blood alcohol content. Like you said, it's three and a half times. So like what, that's a massive, like what's your mindset going into all that? Are you just like, are you drinking whole bottles of whiskey? And then, you know what I mean? Like how does that even happen? So, and with that, and still walking around, let alone driving, it's going to be a sunny scenario. Like I said, whenever we were talking, I hate to bring her into the mix, but that's what it's going to be for some of these people. If they don't either get taken out of the system, like he has been or seek some help or both. And I, I think he should have to pay for his own rehab. I got no problem with that. He's the one that, you know what I mean? You're shitting your nest. Now you got to sit in it. You know what I'm saying? So he's got to, take that on for himself but i'm just i'm not a fan of of jeff hardy anyway just because he's got the limited move set in my opinion and it's the same thing over and over and over and yeah just but for as far as his personal life goes it's sad to see someone going through this but at the same time you just got to shake your head and say how many times does it take you know what i mean before something gets done or he's got some real accountability to face up to you know what do you think benny well, I, first of all, when he said heel professor from uh, back to school, I thought he was going Professor Turgeson, Sam Kinison, but he went to Philip Bay, which I, I I kind of agree he was the heel really, and he was the heel professor. But no, I pretty much you know everything that that Jim said, I totally agree with. You know, number one, we're, we're not talking about a twenty-one year old kid. This guy's going to be forty-five years old, I believe, in August. Um, this has happened numerous times. Um, we just had. But within the last couple of months, an incident where somebody who, who followed the same path, uh, Tammy Sitch, Sonny, you know, killed somebody, drove her vehicle. You know, she was shit faced. And uh, how many DUIs did she have before that? And you don't want it to get to the point where, like, something's going to change when something tragic happens. You want to nip it in the bud before that. So, I mean, I really hope for the guy's sake that this time he gets the help that he needs. Um it, it, otherwise, we're gonna we're gonna truly have another tragedy. And the other thing is, you know, these people make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Call a damn Uber. You need a ride. You know, ask somebody to drive you someplace. Then you come you come back and get your car. It's insane that you. I mean, literally, his, if if his blood alcohol was a batting average, he could be eligible for the Hall of Fame, and that's pretty sad. I had to get that baseball reference in there, Dan. Got to <laughs> drop the baseball reference. You know. It's 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 like you said, it's sad because this is multiple DUIs. It's clearly a pattern. Um, I'm not going to downplay addiction or, or what alcoholism can do to people, but he clearly needs help. Tony Khan, uh, the, the AEW statement said he's not going to be back on TV. He's not welcome back basically until <laughs> excuse me, until he completes his rehabilitation process. So hopefully that'll work. It's going to be interesting as, as stories come out, because if you guys remember when he walked out, well, depending on whose version of events you take, when he left the WWE, there was story. There was a story that the, the, the WWE had offered him rehab uh, based on on a, a failed test, which turned out to be 
incorrect. He didn't fail a test. And I think that's why he turned the rehab down kind of an I'm fine sort of moment. But hopefully, uh, you know, for all the black eyes, including comments we've made towards them, that this sort of sheds a little light. Maybe maybe the WWE was more privy to something than we knew if they were trying to get him into rehab. What? How many months ago now was that? And like you said, you mentioned Tammy, uh, what happened with her and their, the video um, of the incident got pretty hostile. The officers did have fire weapons drawn. I saw uh, that you know, as well. Some, I mean, whether they were worried he was going to flee or what, uh, but he, he could have been hurt. Someone else could have been hurt. And hopefully this, this comes around. But like you said, Benny, I will never be able to put myself in the mindset of, someone making that kind of money, making those kind of mistakes, but I wasn't there. I'm not him. I don't know. And he's not the first. Um, I will say on a personal note though, I like the response versus we talked about it before a comparative issue in the WWE with the Uso brothers taking turns, getting DUIs multiple. And last time that happened, it was that, I believe the I want to say the same week. Don't, I'm sure the internet will make a liar of me if I'm wrong, but at least a few days or a week later uh, from the DUI arrest, they won the tag titles. So I think the fact, and, and I'm not trying to distract too much from what we're originally supposed to talk about, is I think the fact they canceled the ladder match so quickly uh, seems like the plan would have been to put the belts on the Hardys. Maybe Tony Khan didn't want to make the same mistake. That and Jeff Hardy being in jail, it's not like he could actually show up. You may have had another TNA incident where he comes out unable to wrestle. I think that maybe they should go back to the old system that they had back in the day in the WWF where you would hear stories about guys that would be chap- that would chaperone or, or ride Jake around, Jake the Snake, ride right. him around when he was incapable of doing it himself. If you know that the person is in the situation that they're in and you can tell that they're that gone, you can't be in their presence if they've got that kind of a BAC and not know that they're, you know I mean, that they're blown and gone. Give him right. one of the young, give him one of the young lions of the company to show from around. Call him a ride, like Benny said. Like you can't, you can only like it, you got to be responsible for your own actions. But if you watch somebody get murdered and you just stand there and watch it happen and don't say nothing, are you not accountable a little bit for you? Know what I mean, like in your mind and in your soul for not doing something about it. How many people are going to stand by and watch these guys go over the edge with their consumption problems, whether it be pills, alcohol, whatever? And just watch it happen and pat them on the back and be like, oh, we'll get them some help or they need to get some help. I mean, a stronger tone needs to be taken, man, in my opinion. But that's just my opinion. I, I think that these guys should pay for their own rehab, too, because I think it, just my opinion, if your own money is involved, you have a lot more on the line. You have a lot more invested in the program where it's, you know, if it's on somebody else's dime, you, you could take it or leave it. That, again, just my opinion. It should absolutely be part of the, the punishment status or the punishment level of the thing. You know what I mean? Like you right. should have to, yeah. When you go to court, you got to do that, you know? So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Let's but, talk about wrestling boys. Yeah. I was about to say mm-hmm. moving from a, a sad note yeah. to a, a positive one. We're about to get a good history lesson here. I talked at the top of the show, uh, the Amarillo territory, and I'm going to start obviously the obvious question Jim, um, I mean, Amarillo, I mentioned it doesn't get the same oomph, doesn't you don't hear the same uh, coverage. You mentioned yourself, the videos, a lot of pictures are hard to find. Um, Why not start with a brief history of the lineage of Amarillo? Well, if you're going to talk about the funk territory, you've got to go back before the funks, back to 1946, founded by Dory Denton was the uh, brought western state sports to life and had their first show i believe it was at the fairgrounds tri-state fairgrounds in 1946 but yeah he worked in in the early like carnival days of wrestling and stuff like that and he got the promotion off the ground and uh dory went through there and worked for him and with him if i'm not mistaken in his early years whenever dory was on the scene with it's we got to almost talk about Dory at the in the same breath as the promotion because one is really coexistent with the other. You know what I mean? Dory was working the NWA light heavyweight scene or junior heavyweight scene at that time, and then Denton had gotten a hold of or he had started Western State Sports. So in '55, 
Doc Sarpolis purchased Western State Sports from Denton, and Dory Sr. got the opportunity to come in and book and then get a main piece of the action and be highlighted. But the thing about the – one of the reasons I think maybe that – Amarillo is uh, a little bit of a lost territory, and I, I kind of stumbled over the, the dates and places there early on. But there was a little bit of heat between Sam Muchnick and Doc Sarpolis after Doc Sarpolis purchased Western States because Sam Muchnick, if those that don't know, was like he was the godfather almost of the NWA, ran the St. Louis Wrestling Club, pretty much called the shots for who was going to carry the gold in those days. And he wanted to recognize Buddy Rogers as the NWA champion. But Sarpolis, for whatever reason, went against the grain and didn't want to do that. And in that territory, in, in Amarillo, they recognized Gene Konitsky as their champion. So there was some heat there between those guys for a lot of years. And they kept trying to get Sarpolis to recognize the champion they wanted. And eventually, when it come time, for the presidency to be decided again, Sarpolis was elected president of the NWA in 1962 to kind of placate him as far as bringing him under the umbrella and, and not making Amarillo such a rogue territory, I guess you would call it. Not really an outlaw territory, but more of a rogue. They still recognize the NWA, but they, for whatever reason, Sarpolis and Muchnick just didn't see eye to eye about it, you know? So... <clears throat> Sarpolis eventually passed away in 67 and that's when Funk went ahead and purchased the rest of the shares of the territory and they got full ownership of Western State Sports and then after 1967 it was really the Funk territory after that and that's how they got famous out of there and Dory won the World Heavyweight Championship coincidentally from Konitsky in February in 1969 on February 11th and he had the second longest run behind Thez with like four and a half years with that title Damn. so the, the lineage coming out of that territory is thick but I think between we've mentioned this before whenever you've got television local television stations they don't save any of that stuff especially back then whenever they were recording video in the can they would have a set amount of videotapes that they were just rotating out recording these weekly programs recording over it with whatever else and doing the same thing with the other shows so a lot of these weekly wrestling programs were lost to time because they were saving money on video and weren't trying to stockpile that type of stuff but i think that maybe muchnick in those years was trying to put the squash on amarillo getting that nationwide recognition now that's just my my inference on that you know what i mean but muchnick really had control of the nwa at that time and if he had heat with you i'm sure you were probably going to feel it and know it you know jim but, you can't you can't talk amarillo of course you, you you cannot not mention the funks and you know like you said dory won the title of of kaniski in february of 1969 held it four and a half years one of the longest reigns ever and then Terry won it, I believe, in, I want to say, 75, I think. Yeah. And he held it for about a year and a half. The only two brothers ever to hold the, the NWA title. Um, so, obviously, both legends, you, you know, both Dory's, Dory Jr. and Terry. But Dory Sr., I think, is a very understated figure in the history of professional wrestling. He did, I believe, win the junior heavyweight championship in the NWA. But yes. I think in your story... Uh, at one point, wasn't he? He was possibly being groomed to replace Pat O'Connor as the NWA champion. I think Muchnick put the kibosh on that one because I guess you know he did not think Amarillo was was that big of a deal. But um, talk to us about Dory Senior and and his contribution to the sport of professional wrestling. Anytime you think of Dory Senior, at least anytime I think of Dory Senior, I get that that image of the little cowboy hat cocked sideways with that that look on his face like he could just take it any moment. And chances are the guy probably could. He was an Indiana State champion for three out of the four years he was in high school and then went on to win the Indiana State's AAU championship, the American Athletic Union. So he was legit and he knew what he was doing. And that's why Dory Jr. got that reputation as being a legit shooter as well. He learned from the old man. And those guys there, they worked. 
And Amarillo is one of these territories, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later with the titles, but they're a hard-hitting, smash-mouth, you-better-be-tough type of territory, right? So those guys there were known for being able to take care of themselves and handle themselves. And if you're going to – whenever you're an AAU champion, you know what you're doing. That's all I'm saying. And then he went to World War II, like, at that time – Every young man in that age demographic, unless you had something seriously wrong with you, you were going to war. So went to World War II. And then the interesting thing about that, they came from Indiana, and he grew up in Indiana. But after he went to World War II, he came back and relocated to the Texas area. And I'm not sure why that was. I was never able to find that in my research. So I thought that was interesting. And once he relocated... He decided to take wrestling and, and saw what was going on and, and make a living with that for him and his young family, you know. He went to work uh, went to work with uh, Central States Wrestling. This is pre-Bob Geigel when Pinky George was still owning Central States in Missouri. And he was a light junior heavyweight there. And, and also, like I say, he got a reputation for being a shooter for somebody that – you could have a handshake business deal with and knew that he was going to do business. But also those guys like him and Danny Hodge, Thez, these guys were known for if you didn't do business or they didn't think you were going to do business the right way, they could do what they wanted to with you because they knew how to really wrestle beyond making the fans happy. They could take you down and keep you there and do what they wanted to with you. You know what I mean? Which is one of the reasons you hear. I've, I've watched some video this is just about Dory Jr. since we're on this a subject of the wrestling and the amateur style wrestling. And I watched some video where uh, they were talking about Dory Jr. I believe he was wrestling a young Stan Lane was one of the few Western States videos that I found to watch. And the guy that was talking on the announce was talking about how Dory liked to wrestle for long periods of time. And he liked to re- Dory Jr. liked to wrestle in buildings that were really hot because evidently it, it made him more limber and it made it easier made it easier to like he liked to wrestle the match when he was more hot and more warmed up and he liked the building as hot as he could you know or as hot as it could be i don't know if that was just the guy on color popping off during the match but i thought that was an interesting an interesting tidbit that led into the mind of this this the wrestling that's based in amateur style you know what i mean like the the ground the ground and pound on the mat type of wrestling that the funks are known for, especially Dory and Dory Jr. And Jim, I think if I read your story correctly, didn't Dory Sr. actually pass away while giving demonstrating a wrestling hold? I I found that in the research, and I, I couldn't find it as 100% fact. I added it in there just because the source was reputable. But yes, that's... That's what I had heard, and and while you're on that subject, we'll talk real, we'll touch real quickly on Ted DiBiase's dad, Iron Mike DiBiase, famously passed away in the ring, and that was also in the Amarillo territory where that took place. So it's seen its tragedies as well. You know what I mean? Wow, Jim. Something that comes up. I mean, <clears throat> every time we talk territories, uh, I'm hoping maybe you could expand here as well. Um, if you're a territory wrestler back in the day, what entices you to want to go work in Amarillo? Well, the thing about it is, like I just said earlier, you got to be tough to want to work in that territory. You know, you got to be able to hold your own. So <clears throat> the guys that went there, they had what it took. You know what I mean? Like they could really go out and, and go outside and, and stand up to whatever had to come at them. Let me find my notes where I had this written down. I'm, I'm scrolling right now. So the thing about Amarillo was you got a lesson like that. Again, we're going to go that amateur that we were just talking about. If you go there, you're going to get you're going to learn. You're not just going to go there and get a payday. And the mileage wasn't that bad. It was it was it wasn't a huge territory, but the mileage wasn't that bad. You know what I mean? So they weren't all over the place. But I, I don't know. I haven't really heard a lot about, like, payouts and stuff like that. I didn't find anything like that, so I can't, I can't speak upon that. But I'm sure that, they, that that was good as well. They were – the punks had it going on in that whole section of Texas all the way into South Colorado and, and uh, New Mexico, you know. So, yeah, there was always 
and you learn, you know what I mean? You go on the road, you learn. It's just all part of it back in those days. You can't stay in, in one pond and expect to learn everything you need to know if you're going to move up to the next level, you know? Jim, a, a similar type question. So, you know, we talked about all the other territories. M Memphis, pretty geographically confined where these guys are going to be, you know, in their bed every night for the most part. Florida, kind of similar. The Mid-South, the polar opposite where they're – you know, they're probably putting a couple of thousand miles a week on their car. You're going through a new car probably every uh, every couple of years. How does Amarillo stack up with those as far as like doing the loop? I looked at the map and 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 like I said, the it, it went from West Texas to Southwest Colorado, which is like I'm in Denver, so we're talking down around Colorado Springs and the Pueblo area. They went into Albuquerque and then I think into the Oklahoma Panhandle as well for like the spot shows. But just, the, I mean, if you lived in the territory, and I don't know that the Amarillo territory was hot enough to have you working like five nights a week, like say Mid-South or, or somebody like Florida might. But if you live in that territory, you had the option of being able to be home a lot more often than not. Now, I don't know, like there was some name stays guys, name stay guys that we're going to talk about that. I'm sure we're living in the territory, but a lot of guys would use Amarillo as a stopping point on the way through just to say that they went there to put that notch in their belt. You know what I mean? Add that territory to their resume. But I found last time I thought it was kind of fun. We we ran some numbers, so I didn't do like the round trip, what it would be round trip, but I got some numbers as far as distances from Amarillo to Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs would be the farthest probably the farthest north, Albuquerque, the farthest west, El Paso, San Angelo, the farthest east. So to Colorado Springs from Amarillo is like 425 miles. So you could drive like six hours, hit that show, and come back if you wanted to be home that night. Or if you were on a, a loop, maybe you were going to go somewhere else. Albuquerque to Amarillo is 300 miles. Amarillo to El Paso is 430 Amarillo to San Angelo is 315. So they've all got about the same distances in between them. So you're always going to have time on the road like that in the territorial days. It's not the huge long trips that you're going to see in, like you say, a Mid-South or an AWA going from, you know I mean, Minneapolis to Denver, because that's who had the other half of Colorado. So they went pretty far south toward Mexico way too, but I think – once they got down towards San Antonio, they were getting into the Paul Bosch area and maybe the Blanchards down that way, you know. So in those old days, man, especially old school guys like the Funks, I don't think they crossed the territorial lines any more than they had to. You know, I mean, you respected that stuff. But you could do if you were on the loop, it wouldn't be that bad. But like I say, I don't know that they had enough going on to be out there four or five multiple nights a week. I'm guessing it would probably be a weekly spot show and then hit something big on the weekends. You know, every territory ends up, when, when we talk history, when you look at history, it ends up being defined by its great feuds. I mean, Memphis had Lollard, Dundee, uh, you know, Mid-South, we talk about the, the Midnight and the Rock and Roll Express, Jim Crockett. Uh, Jimmy Valiant, the Paul Jones Army, Florida with Kevin Sullivan and, you know, whoever the devils were going after. Uh, so I'm curious. Other, I mean, we, you can't you can't help but mention the funks. But what were some of the great feuds or the cornerstone feuds of Amarillo? Well, whenever you get into that, you, the tag team belts and the tag team titles changed hands pretty frequently. And I think they used those belts to to push the guys that were either coming through or whatever. But the brass knuckles title and the heavyweight championship, those were the ones that were the namestays of the territory. And the original, like, you got the title that's below the NWA title. That title originally in the uh, Western States territory was the North American Heavyweight Championship for Amarillo. Like, every little territory had a version of that, I think. So that was pretty contested after. And I think the longest-running feud that I saw in my research there was uh, – Dory Sr. and Fritz Von Erich, the two patriarchs, going at it. And they had a feud back and forth and changed that belt for two years almost, from 1962 to 1964. So 
that was drawing money for them and that title was a big deal but then in 69 as some things changed within the company the western states championship took over as the main state title underneath the nwa belt and you've seen a lot of guys going back and forth after that but probably the biggest rivalry there as far as swapping the belt back and forth throughout the early, late 1971 and all of 1972, Cyclone Negro and a young Lord Alfred Hayes battled back and forth for that title. And I don't know how many people have seen footage of Alfred Hayes in his youth, but Alfred Hayes could go. Don't let Alfred Hayes fool you, man. Alfred Hayes is like the little cockney guy that you remember in the in the tuxedo with a ha ha. You know what I mean? The, the little like he's looks like he's drunk and having a party all the time with Vince McMahon and having a big time. Vince McMahon would put a, a face that he wanted on these guys, but many many of the guys in the Vince McMahon camp in the '80s that were in the commentary and and agent end of things could go. And Lord Alfred Hayes was one of these, man. He came up through the Wiccan system and, that, and the stuff in England and then came over here and had, had runs in a few different territories, but was strong in Amarillo in 72. And Cyclone Negro was one of the guys that was a local that lived locally but traveled worldwide. And he and Alfred Hayes, man, they went back and forth over that title. That was I was foaming at the mouth to find footage of these matches, and I could not. It was, uh, yeah, I, I looked all over, man, like Google. The Google machine was busy at the house, man. I was looking, <laughs> I was looking for this stuff and, and just couldn't get it. And then Terry Funk and Dory Funk and, and uh, Junior, they had runs at basically every title in the company because they're, they own the company, you know what I mean? So they're going to they're gonna get runs at everything and to try and pull business. Um, there's a real famous, I won't say famous, but I saw it on Prime, and it was a biography about Terry Funk and one of the times that he retired. And he was at the, it showed the auditorium, and he was sitting there, and he was going to have his last match, one of many. And there was a guy out in front of the thing, and he was, uh, his name was Dennis Stamp. And he was standing out in front of the auditorium, and he was like, well, if I'm not booked, I'm not going to show up. And he was making a big deal about it, right? And then Terry got wind of it, and then they had this big heartfelt conversation out in front of it. And at the time, like I say, when I saw it, I just thought Dennis Stamp was some guy that was connected somehow. But come to find out in doing research for the piece, Dennis Stamp actually wrestled for Western State Sports and had a feud with Terry Funk a few times over different belts and in different situations. So after I was doing my research, that, that just came back to my mind. And I hate to, to shed light on, on the guy, but he was being kind of a bitch on the, in the movie. But <laughs> he was like, yeah, if I'm not booked, I'm not going to show up. And he just kept saying that. And then Terry got there and, Terry was basically begging this job guy to fucking come and referee his match just to placate him. It was, <laughs> it was interesting, and it's a one of those many humorous Terry Funk moments. But, but come on now, you can come and, and referee the match. And while I'm not booked, Terry, I'm not going to show up. It was just a great back and forth, and I wish I knew the name of that documentary, but it was uh, centered around one of Terry's retirements. In, well, in hopefully uh, some of that... Some, some of those tapes do exist somewhere, the young Alfred Hayes. I'm at the age where when you mention Lord Alfred Hayes, the first thing that comes to my mind is promotional consideration paid for by the paid following. By the following. <laughs> yeah, but Alfred Hayes, he had the big bushy pork chops, and then he had like, uh, oh. you know, Jerry, or Jerry Lawler's famous for the strap where he lowers the strap, and then he's going to kick your ass. Lord Alfred Hayes had the one-strap singlet like that, and he just had this real – this real cocky look about him. It was just, it was just great stuff. You know what I mean? But there's footage of him out there wrestling younger, but I couldn't find any of him wrestling for that particular title in that year. But yeah, it's good stuff. I, yeah. Search your YouTube kids. <laughs> well, I know for, for the listening audience, this is audio for, for the, uh, the couple of us that can see the video regularly. Benny does that. He pulls the strap down right when he's getting ready to ask a really good question. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah, I, whenever I don't, well, I'll give it away, but whenever Benny gets out of line, Dan gives him the big chop, and then sometimes Benny will sit there and hulk up, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's fun to watch, you guys. Actually, make- what he does, he just threatens to cut my pay, and that usually gets me right back in line, because <laughs> I'm a money guy, so. And I, I remember the original Lord Alfred Hayes. He was not the guy in the tux, the silly guy 
he was a legit badass. He was the original uh, William Regal. I mean, he was he was tough as nails. He had a reputation of. I mean, he he could bring it in the ring. And Billy Robinson, Jim, he was a Billy Robinson too. Right. Was, yeah. The other guy you mentioned was Cyclone Negro, and I remember one of the first wrestling magazines. I think it was Wrestling Review. I bought in '68 or '69. I mean, I'm not, I've still never seen any of his matches, but I there was a picture in in <laughs> excuse me in the magazine of him kicking somebody in the head. And I thought, man, this guy is as vicious as they come. And they, the article portrayed him as, you know, as a, you know, nasty heel. Um, my, I, my opinion is the guy is one of the most underrated wrestlers in the past fifty years. What would you say to that? I would have to agree. And with that, with you got to look at the times that we're talking about, and the fact that he was African American, and a lot of those guys just didn't get pushed the way they should get pushed. You saw a lot of those guys used underneath. But Cyclone Negro, he got a reputation for himself and traveled the world, you know what I mean, and, and saw it all. In, in every territory, traveled to Japan, Canada, wrestled all over. But he saw his most success in Amarillo and then in Florida in later years. And, like, <clears throat> he started out not even as a wrestler. He started out as a boxer. He faced uh, Floyd Patterson in the Pan American Games before he turned to wrestling. But he was one of those guys, I would say, like a Paul Orndorff type build. He was thick through the chest and wide at the shoulders and had that, that big V shape like the old guys had. You'd see the old school wrestling pose, one of the famous old school wrestling poses in the black and whites, is they got their hand at their waist and they got the chest puffed out and they got that, that traditional V, that big waist to the shoulders V and he had that man he was so cut and so ripped and made it like I say made a name for himself all over the world as somebody that would do business and could get over and like and those African Americans just weren't pushed in in the mainstream like that during his generation I'm gonna go ahead and go out on a limb and say that it was guys like him that opened doors for people to come later you know as a, a foundation builder you know yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I was reading your article, I kind of was, you know, doing some research just to sort of see things. And and if you Google uh, Cyclone Negro, one of the images is a magazine cover from Inside Wrestling. And it's him in the bottom corner putting the hurt on somebody. The main picture focus of the other article is Bruno. And the other picture, which I, I couldn't help but laugh given their connection to our show, is the Valiant Brothers and it, and it, the little subheadline said meet meet Luscious John and Handsome oh, Jimmy's brother. You win the date with the Valiants, right? Yeah, basically. Um, and it's interesting, and, and I don't want to narrate too much because uh, if you follow his career, Cyclone Negro uh, was he was born in Venezuela. He was able to play. And I mean that in in the sense of a character, he was able to be a you know being dark skinned, very ethnic looking looking fighter. He was able to be black. They were also able to narrate, oh, this guy's you know from South America, Central America, and he could play kind of a a, a Hispanic character as well. And everywhere it seems that he went globally, he had success as that. I don't want to say foreign heel because that's a weird narrative when you're talking about someone traveling the world, but it's really the best way to describe it is he was the, he was the ethnic heel and he could put a hurt on people. And that was kind of his reputation. So I, I just want to agree with what Benny said is if you can find anything on him, look him up. Cause that's one of those names that often falls through the cracks and it's important what he did for, for wrestling. And as long as it was, he, he died, uh, in 2013 and for years at the end he was still touring circuits and and talking and whatnot so i mean he was a presence for a long time in in, in the narrative of wrestling absolutely absolutely jim, jim um so each each of the territories they had their own little brand and so memphis had that little touch of comedy uh mid-south was very physical very real and florida was very intense especially with uh Kevin Sullivan and his Army of Darkness. How would you describe Amarillo in a few words? 
Smash Mouth, Down Home, like uh, very uh, in your face, I guess you would say, style. Uh, they told great stories, but they had uh, the ethnicity going on as well, being that close to the border. There's a couple guys that we haven't talked about yet that were mainstays in that company that was uh, Ricky Romero, the patriarch of the Youngbloods, and then obviously Gory Guerrero, the patriarch of the Guerrero dynasty, got his start there, and he actually did some booking for Amarillo. So you're going to have a little bit of that mixed style. It's not only going to be the American style of wrestling because you've got Gory influencing things. You're going to have that Lucha-influenced undercard a little bit as well. You know what I mean? You're going to have the Mexican wrestlers featured more. So it was it was a mix. You know, I, I hate to say Tex-Mex because that sounds generic, but I guess it would be, you know what I mean? If, if you're going to try and, and describe it in a term, I guess, you know, but very physical. And the matches, the matches were there. You saw color. You know what I mean? Let's not get around it. You're going to see some color down in Texas for sure, you know. But guys like Gory Guerrero and Ricky Romero, I don't want to – not talk about those guys as well because you're talking about foundations that went throughout the business for years to come with gory decades of influence on the business you know so speaking of brand uh territories have their flair you mentioned the using the tag titles for an evolution. Um, territories obviously had regional titles as well. Amarillo being no exception to that. Um, one of the titles I was hoping you could kind of expand on and then talk about some of the other titles. Cause you mentioned it and it was something that, that uh, kind of sticks out is they had uh, the Texas brass knuckles championship. And I, they weren't the only territory with a bare knuckle brass knuckles belt, but theirs is really the one that comes up a lot. Uh, I was wondering if you kind of talk about that title and any other significant uh, junior titles in the territory through the years. Well, those are the titles. The the Brass Knuckles title is always going to be that title in a territory that's used to settle a feud or that's that's used to, you know, I mean, stuff like that where the they're really going to have those extra uh, extra things in the match. Just, just call it Brass Knuckles, but it could be anything, man. It could be. Like before tables, ladders, and chairs, they weren't doing the flip, flop, fly, but those guys could be using all all kinds of stuff, the big, the weighted glove or whatever, you know what I mean? So, but such a hard-hitting nature of the territory, man. You got, let's just name off, just to give some examples of the Brass Knuckles Championship, you ask about the style and, and what it was like. You got guys like Dick Murdoch that held the title, Fritz Von Erich, Terry Funk, you know what I mean, and Bruiser Brody. You know, you're not going to, if you got guys like that that are associated with the title, you know, you're going to have some, some hard hitting stuff going on. And it was, <clears throat> excuse me, the Brass Knuckles was just one of those that they didn't really have, they had television going on, but it, they didn't have a TV title. It was your lesser, your lesser title underneath the North American. But Don Slatten, the lawman, was famous in the Brass Knuckles Championship. He had a good run in the territory in that title. So it was just one of those that it was an undercard title, but man, the hard there was hard hitting matches happening. You know what I mean? Well, actually, one of the friends of our show, uh, Davey O'Hannon, he's been on our show before, and uh, he held the Texas Brass Knucks Championship. And you just you just mentioned Don Slatton, so perfect segue. That was one of my questions. That that was a character that I had actually never heard of until I read your story, but. Um, very interesting story about him that you know. I guess he did very well down there, and enough so that Harley Race came down to face him. I guess was it in a uh, a strap match, and uh, very interesting goings on uh, with that match. So if you could tell us about the Lawman Don Stratton, uh, Don Slatton rather, and and what happened when he faced Harley Race. Yeah, let me talk a little bit about Don Slatton, the man, first before we get into that. He was actually a police officer before he became a wrestler. So that's how he got the law. He carried his real life job over into his gimmick. So that's, he started working as the lawman, and it was almost like a Wyatt Earp type of sheriff. I don't think he came down in a big, a big slicker or nothing, but he had the hat and the vest and the old school looking cowboy. Right. So he was famous for his four corners matches. It was actually, it was a strap match, but it was one that you had to, you had to slap all four corners. 
and Slatton was kind of famous for those in that in that local area. And I uncovered that little story and I backed it up and, and I don't like putting stuff like that in stories because you never know for sure. But I talked to a good friend of mine who grew up in Texas and, and was affiliated with the NWA. And a lot of times I'll run stuff by him to fact check it. And he said the story was real. So the what had happened was Harley Race was coming into, I don't know if it was the Amarillo territory per se, but it was in that area. It was in that section of Texas. And he was coming in to wrestle a match, and Don Slatton was going to be his opponent, and it was going to be a four corners strap match. So Race gets contacted by Bob Geigel, the owner of uh, Central States. So Bob Geigel, and Bob Geigel was in the NWA office too, and he tells Harley Race, he's like, listen, I'm hearing that Slatton may try to go into business for himself. There's rumblings that. He may try to take the belt. Be careful. This is one of those type of matches you got to worry about. And it really cracked me up. The, the funny thing, one of the funny things about the whole anecdote was Harley Race's reply. Because Harley Race is like, hey, I'm Harley Race. Don't worry about this. I got it. You know what I mean? He's basically patting Bob Geigel on the head and be like, don't worry about it. I got it. And Race is known or was known for not only being a, a bad, a badass that could carry his own and really beat the shit out of you. But he always had a gun. He was a he was a gun aficionado, and he always had some kind of sidearm in his car or in his bag, one or the other. Now I don't know that there was any gunplay related in this story. I don't think that there was, but that just gives you the mindset of the the old school guys. So Race thinks Slatten may go into business for himself, and in the middle of the match, Harley's got. Don Slatton in the classic got the strap over his shoulder. Slatton's sitting there, already hit three of the ring posts or three of the, the, the corner posts, and he goes to get the fourth and actually gets it and gets his fingers on it. And they realize, holy shit, this guy's just won the NWA championship from Harley Race. And Slatton bolts out of the ring, right? Like gets out of the strap and busts down out of the ring, runs to the back, and Harley Race follows his ass to the back. Now, at that point, the fans have seen, the fans are confused. They don't know what's going on, right? There's that, like, in the air of confusion is there. But the story that I heard from my friend was after they got in the back that Harley Race had a conversation with him, we'll say, and he set him straight on why you don't do that and why you don't go into business for yourself. And I understand that he, he gave him a pretty good beating. But they had it where they worked it out where it was a disqualification and, and Harley Race held the title and none of that passed over. But, yeah, it was uh, one of those things. You know, I mean, it's the old school days of wrestling. You had to protect those titles. Those champions really had to be able to, you know, I mean, hold the belt. Any time you're wrestling every night and any night somebody could want to take that title from you and go into business for themselves. You know what I mean? So there was always that there. And every once in a while you get these little stories about that happening, but I can only imagine what it was like whenever race come through the back, right on the heels of Slatten and the conversation or lack of that was had. It, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall or been one of the boys to see that, but it happens. You know what I mean? But it was just funny that Harley race was like, don't worry about it. I got this, but yeah. But, you know, Jim, to me, one of the great things about the territory days was that, you know, the champion was a traveling champion. And specifically, he would go from territory to territory and wrestle the local guy. And a lot of times, you know, they would they'd go to a 60 minute draw a Broadway. And even, you know, so like the Slatin guy, just the fact that he's going toe to toe with Harley Race, the champion, really one of their jobs was to build up the local talent. And I think that's something that. I mean, that's definitely a lost art nowadays. Oh, yeah, man. Like, especially Harley Race was great at it. And we could talk about champions all day long, but I think Flair was maybe one of the best. You would see him go in and, and wrestle guys and put them over. The Mike Jackson-Flair match is one of the great matches between Flair and a jobber that you'll ever see. Man, he, he might can hold his own, but Flair really made that match look beautiful. And you see it happen all the time. But there's always – it was more so in those early days, 60s, 70s. You really didn't see it in the 80s as much because it was a lot more about the money back then. Like, it was always about money, but it was in the 60s and 70s, there was 
that I'm a badass and I'm going to show you attitude. You know what I mean? Those guys really would go. And, and it harkens back to what I said earlier about Dory Sr. being a shooter. You had to be able to hold your own and take care of yourself in those days. And guys like Race had a reputation for doing that. And then, like I said, he carried a gun as well. So people knew not to mess with him. There was, I don't, I can't go into the specifics of this. Like I heard another story that where there was an incident in the locker room and two guys got into it. And I can't remember the two guys who were getting into it, but it was settled with Harley Race putting a pistol in somebody's ribs. And that was the end of that. You know what I mean? Like, he was wow. a locker room general before that was a term, I guess, you know? So, but you always had to worry about that if you were the NWA champion. I don't care who the NWA, like Dory Jr., like Terry, Race, Flair, all those guys had that in the back of their mind. If they didn't, they were foolish and they shouldn't have been champions to begin with. You had to have that that mindset that, you know what I mean? Somebody's always going to try you, you know, and you got to be able to do something about it if they do. But those well, are the greats. Those are the You great. also had to be able to legit, like you said, legitimately defend yourself, and you know that's why you had. I, I hate to say it, but you had wrestlers that looked like wrestlers. I mean, nowadays, you, you watch the product today, and it's like, oh, this guy in the ring is the big monster, and he's 5'11", 185, and he's the big guy in the match. That's how small some of the talent is, you know. Um, but I'm curious, speaking of talent, I was hoping you could touch on that a little more. Um, I mean, Amarillo, yeah, we talk about the Funks, and you talked about the traveling champions. Uh, but, I mean, Amarillo, through their history, was absolutely loaded. No no pun intended on your gun joke. Loaded with <laughs> talent and legends and Hall of Famers and some of the best of not just their generation, but period. And I was hoping you could kind of expand on some of the names that went in and out of Amarillo. Well, you're talking about guys like Bob Backlund. And we talked about Gory Guerrero earlier. Backlund was one of these guys that was in and out. You had people that were mainstays. Gory Guerrero was a mainstay. Ciclone Negro was a mainstay for many years. Obviously, the Funks. But guys that would come in and spend some time and then go. Thunderbolt Patterson was there for a while. Sputnik Monroe saw time there. Uh, Wahoo McDaniel. A lot of the guys that were based out of that area. You know what I mean? Those mid, those, the guys that were in Texas, Oklahoma. Um, Tito Santana went through there as a young guy now let's if, if we're talking about people that went through there um bill watts spent some time there but we're also we need to talk about early on in the territory day in the territory's days a young guy that was working under the name rip rogers went through there and that was eddie graham and everybody always wants to talk about eddie graham and and everybody sits at the feet of eddie graham and eddie graham and he was he was one of the great minds of the business, but every great mind and everybody that's a genius learns someplace on their own as well. And one of the places that Eddie Graham worked at and studied under was Dory Funk Sr. in Amarillo. And he held the title there for a little while. Well, I think with Art Nelson, maybe one of the tag titles that he held there. Um, but yeah, these guys, the, the knowledge that went through, it wasn't so much a heavily traveled territory to where like like a georgia or a florida where you want to go there because you know you're going to get tv exposure and you know it's a stepping stone to someplace else amarillo was a territory where you went and learned it was uh, a territory where you put that under your belt and people saw that and they knew that you had some kind of amateur structural background coming out of there you know what i mean and pedro morales went through there and then race and Rhodes both went through there you know and then if we could talk a little bit about um, the Japanese connection as well. Jumbo Saruta come through there. Baba came through there. All kinds of people came through whenever they made the connection with Japan. And I think the Funks was probably one of the best territories that had connections overseas like that. And I, I also think that that goes back to the fact that he was based in the amateur style and people respected him for their ability not just for their drawing ability, but for their ability in the ring. And they knew that they was going to be able to shake these guys' hands and know they were going to do business and do what they said, you know? So it's an honor and respect thing. And once you've earned that, especially when you're dealing with generational families, 
once you've earned that, you can expand your business in a lot of ways. And that expansion went across the ocean to all Japan. And they had a tight working relationship with all Japan as well. You know what I mean? And that brought in Stan Hansen and some other people. So, yeah, it was it was a, a revolving door of talent. I know that's a cliche, but that's exactly what it was, you know. And they, as far as the Baba and all Japan, the the Funks booked for Baba and all Japan for a while. And that's not to say that they booked his matches. That's to say that they provided American talent for Baba and in exchange for Baba doing the same for them. So they booked guys over to Baba to Japan to go wrestle over there. So it was very lucrative, you know what I mean? And that's one of the ways that they were able to maintain that territory and keep it fresh. Because at the same time that you've got the punks doing all this stuff, you got to remember Dory Jr. is an NWA heavyweight champion, and he's traveling all over. So that's a major talent that's not in your territory anymore. So the other guys have got to step up. And then you got Terry, the same thing. As these guys that are the foundation stones of the company and the territory get popular and they move off to go work in different parts of the country, it leaves gaps. You know what I mean? And I think that those gaps eventually was one of the things that played on this territory and the fact that the headline and stars weren't there as often. You know, I kind of rambled on that, but there's a lot of information for you. There's another answer in 47 parts. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Benny, as we wrap up here, another lightning rod. Just go just how fast these go by. I love these, these talks we have with Jim on the show. Um, any final thoughts, final questions? Well, a really quick question, uh, Jim, why, why did the funks, I think they, they sold the territory to, is it uh blackjack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch in 1980? Why did they sell? Was it because of their own careers? Yeah, we can go ahead. And that's a, yeah. Since we're getting toward the end of the time, that seems like a good thing to talk about. The, it was because of that, because they had so many other monetary things pulling them in other directions. Terry Funk was hugely over. We don't have to talk about how over he was. And and Dory was the same way. They both, Dory and Terry both ended up going to the WWF and working as a tag team there and worked WrestleMania two with Jimmy Hart as their manager. So they went, Vince McMahon, you know what I mean? I hate to, Hate to sound like the words we just keep ringing that bell at the end of every episode, but the Vince McMahon took it all over. But you got his influence is obviously felt here, you know. And then when they sold the, I think it was 30,000, if I'm not mistaken, is what they sold the territory for. I could be wrong, but they sold to Black Jack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch, who had worked the territory several times. And these guys, I'm sure wanted their own piece of the pie and we're going to do their own things and do it like they wanted. You know what I mean? That's got to be refreshing if you're a wrestler to buy into a territory and do it the way you want. But at that point in time, that territory was just drying up. There just wasn't anything there anymore. All the major stars from the Texas area were gone and moved on to other things. And that part of the country just wasn't happening anymore. The Lucha was still strong down toward El Paso and, and down that way, down further South San Antonio way. But for the funk territory itself at the end, I think it was mainly because you had the boys going out and doing other things and seeking fame and fortune elsewhere, you know? And you can't blame them. They're not what what you expect them to do. They can't get famous and stay in that little area forever, you know what I mean? So, And then, like I say, you got the Vince McMahon factor. He's gobbling up the country. And that was just one of the little small dwindling territories that he chomped up first. But they didn't, uh, once they purchased the territory, I believe within, was it a year, they were out of business? Yeah. It was I think it was, yeah, within a year, year and a half, something like that, 14 months. So, yeah, but I don't know really, and that's another thing, that's another reason that we, I, I keep saying that this was a lost territory, and I don't want it to sound that like a negative thing. I think it's a sad thing, because you don't see a lot of the footage either after Murdoch and Mulligan took over in the end days, the last throws of the territory. I would like to say if any, if the, in like, as we're getting into the end of the show, I'll give my email and stuff like that. If anybody has any connections or has any access to any of this old footage, I would love to get hands on it and lay hands on this stuff and not to put it back out there or try and monetize it for my own self, man, but shit, just to see it, you know, just to be able to go to school and sit down and watch it and see these old 
matches that may be lost to time that could just be sitting on a shelf somewhere, sitting in a stack of videotape somewhere that need to be transferred to digital. You know, like a lot of the old school stuff is lost that way and it's sad. And I think that the funk territory needs to be recognized more because you got, they they did set records. You did say the only two brothers to ever hold the NWA title. And then you've got, look at all the stuff Terry did. He worked every title, every company that's ever been in existence all the way up to AEW. You know what I mean? Funk's work, Terry's worked there. If not, had something major to do with, with getting money for him and putting him over. So you can't say enough about the family. And, and, and I have so much respect for them as a, as a legacy and a dynasty. But I think Amarillo is unsung, as you say. And, and, and yeah, it needs to be seen more. And I'd love to see more out of it, you know? You know, uh, one of the cornerstones of the history of our show, we've had him on twice. He's, his name's come up a few times. Uh, George Pontus has, uh, he, he one of his claims to fame was, was sitting ringside and recording a lot of the Mid-Atlantic moments, the battle of the, the battle of the nature boys. And some of those, you know, legendary moments, the only known footage is this kid, this kid into his later years sitting at ringside with a camera. So, you know, I'd love to get the word out. Maybe there was a George in Texas somewhere. Yeah. Either that or even the family somehow, you know what I mean? Like I, even if they have access to stuff like that, or if they're sitting on it, I, I would urge them to make, start a YouTube page, put it out there. You know what I mean? Do something with it. Don't just let it go away in time. The longer that stuff sits idle, the, the more it's forgotten. And I hate to see that man, because just this old stuff needs to be seen. Just like we were talking about with Eddie Graham, you know what I mean? If someone who had that great of a mind spent time like that in that territory and he got stuff out of it, it's there's, you know what I mean? Everybody should be watching it and getting stuff out of it. And you do only see a handful of territorial stuff. You mentioned it at the top of the show, Georgia, Florida, all these places of the, or where your mind immediately snaps to. And that's just because it had so much exposure once Vince McMahon took over he made these documentaries about the different territories and stuff and you just don't never really see anything about amarillo like that and i would like to see more of it you know i can understand and respect that and hopefully uh we'll get the word out you know i i would love to see it there's some i'm sure there's some moments in there that those those involved have I, I don't, I hate to say it, but those involved might've forgotten about, and they watch the old tapes. Oh, I remember that, you know, brings Absolutely. back that, that nostalgia for them. I love it. Um, Jim, I've, again, thank you so much for your time. We, we love these, these territory talks that we do. Uh, other than, I mean, uh, we top of the hour, I mentioned your involvement, pro wrestling stories. We can't hype enough. Some of the work you do there. Uh, what is, what else you got coming up? Any projects? Well, I've, I've got the YouTube page up and going, and I've got the, the Universal Yum's food video reviews that are on there. I've got the new the new box just came in today. We're going to Thailand later as soon as I get done talking to you guys. That stuff so looks really, really good. Oh, man. Yeah, we're going to – yeah, it's it's good stuff. And i got to be honest, I should be getting I should be getting free Universal Yum's from these people for the videos. But we're, we'll get there, goddammit. We'll get there. But, uh, yeah, ProWrestlingStories.com. You can find me there. And uh, – like anytime, if you want to reach out to me, my uh, squints seventy two h h i at gmail. That's that's my personal email. I mean, I'm not scared to have a conversation, comments, criticisms, whatever you got, come at me. You know what I mean? But it would be great to open up the email and be find an email that says, "Oh yes, I've been sitting on a treasure trove of Amarillo stuff, and I'd love to see it get the light of day." I, that would be a nice email to get. So feel free to reach out to me and. Follow me on the U- on the the YouTube with the Jim Phillips. You, I'll just have to look my name up on there. You'll be able to find me. And the territory talks on here. I'm loving these, man. Like really enjoying this. So I'm out there running around. You'll see my stuff in the wrestling community. I'll be popping up here and there. Yeah, just to add, like, I mean, what you just said. Um, I'm a huge fan. When I started watching in 1968, you know, in New York, and that was uh, Capital Wrestling from the National Arena with uh, Ray Morgan. And you can you can only find but you know maybe five or six uh, uh, clips of it on YouTube. And there's got to be you know they, they did that for years and years. Same thing with uh, Studio Wrestling in Pittsburgh, legendary little sub territory of the WWF. 
And uh, I mean, they have such a huge following. But the problem is the technology back then, I believe they just they taped over things. Yeah, so they a didn't lot of the stuff was lost. They didn't save anything, man. I, there's, I, I heard one of the wrestlers talking about it on a documentary, and I think it may have been either Rhodes or Flair talking about the way that they would just tape over stuff, and they never saved anything. And it was uh, sad, you know. It really, it really is sad. But there's stuff out there, and it is in existence out there. It just has to be found. All these territories, you know, all these little territories that are the quote-unquote lost children of the wrestling world you know what i mean so they're out there we just got to find them and they just have to be unturned it's like the the storage wars show where you get in the storage unit and find great things you didn't know was sitting there there's some stuff sitting out there somewhere just matter of turning it over and finding it but yeah so much was lost just to haste and not having the forward thinkingness to save it Absolutely. And you have to hope it's out there. And a uh, quick shout out before we wrap up. I know all the territory talk um, you were talking about, about ways to, to get in touch. Um, last show we touched on uh, the, the big event they had up at the BWC with Jimmy Valiant and our sponsors, and they've been, been putting some good stuff out there. Uh, they're getting up now doing some fundraisers where not just, not just the, the usual, uh, cameo type video greetings. Um, but that Jimmy's also offering a, a private tour. Uh, imagine, I mean, you've been there, Benny, imagine, you know, how, <laughs> imagine just how engrossed in the history you'd be. You talk about some lost memories. There's stuff on those walls that, that it's, it is a literal living museum. And I can't stress enough um, for anybody out there, obviously, you know, our connection to the BWC, uh, jimmyvaliant.wheelie.com. You got to look up, look them up, look up their good stuff. And as Jim mentioned, Jim Phillips, prowrestlingstories.com. Benny, I know you're on there as well. You've got a good uh, list going. And uh, so for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, for Jim Phillips at prowrestlingstories.com, I'm Dan Spastiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time we're in the ring. Peace.